Josh, you will never guess what I'm up to. I mean, does that mean I shouldn't even try? I I don't think you're going to get it, but go ahead. Give it a shot. Is it cat related? This time, no. Nail polish related? Uh, Unfortunately, no. That that is one of my passions. Is it cooking related? You're getting very warm with it. (laughs) All right. Let's hear this. What is it? So... I am entering into this competition called the Platinum Pudding, which celebrates the 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth getting on the throne in England. Wait, so the queen is celebrating her 70th year of reign and you're making her pudding? I am really trying to make a pudding worthy of the queen. So I take this to mean that you support the royal family. I'm a pretty big fan of the royal family. I've been reading about them for years and um, I think it's safe to say that I stand them pretty hard. (laughs) They seem pretty antithetical to some of your normal socialist, progressive, bring down the establishment views. Sure. But I can have different opinions about different things. And in this case, I'm choosing to ignore some of my other preferences. And I I really quite enjoy the monarchy. Well, I think we uh, disagree on that pretty strongly. Oh, really? I would be happy to overthrow said monarchy. Overthrow the monarchy? Abolish, overthrow, take down, whatever word you want to put onto it. I think they should be gone. Well, it sounds like we have a controversy on our hands. It sounds like we have battle on our hands. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. So we're back for round two of Kelly v. Josh celebrity grudge match, (laughs) this time on the topic of whether or not we should abolish monarchies. Are you sure you want to do this again, considering how badly I beat you last time? (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. You think you won the last debate? I mean, I haven't heard otherwise, and we haven't really asked anybody to like really tell us whether or not we've won. Okay, well... I did ask people and they said I won. But how about how about we make it interesting this time and we put some stakes on this? What are you thinking? Well, we are debating British royalty and I am a fan of tea. So how about when I win, you owe me a bag of tea? Hmm. The fancy stuff. Okay. Well, I'm much more of a coffee drinker. So how about when I win, you get me some really nice coffee? All right, I'll buy you a bag of uh, Costco coffee. That's the best there is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how about at the end of the episode, we'll put up a poll on our Facebook and our Twitter, both at IndubitablyPod, to give our listeners the chance to let you know this time definitively that once again, I have beaten you. Unless I beat you. All right. You, you are a fan of the monarchy, so I suppose dreams and hopes are something you can look forward to. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get into this and see, see how we fare. So I believe that monarchies around the world should be abolished. And in fact, I also believe that the world just would be a better place if they hadn't even existed in the first place. So why don't we start there? Why don't we begin with the establishment of monarchies? And then as the debate moves on, we can bring ourselves into modern times and talk about those royal families around the world that are still in existence. All right. So first of all, fun fact, 
The world's first empire was established in Mesopotamia by King Sargon of Akkad more than 4,000 years ago. And although there had technically been several kings before him, King Sargon is referred to as the first king because he founded the first empire in the history of the world in 2330 BCE. So he's the one that started this madness. He's the one at fault for everything wrong with the world right now. (laughs) Okay. I think it's important to look at how these rulers came to become rulers in the first place, especially considering the types of societal structures there were at the time and how people could survive. Strength was an incredibly important factor. It was really a matter of who was conquering the world versus who would get conquered. And it made sense to have a strong leader who could establish empires and protect people. So you're literally starting this debate with the argument that might makes right. By virtue of the fact that X person was strong enough to cut off the heads of their enemies and take the throne, they deserve that throne. In a world where there was really no other way to determine leadership or protecting societies as a whole, might did make right. The only way to determine leadership was who cut off whose head? 4,000 years ago? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're advocating for a system that exploits the workers, that hangs on to outdated imperialist dogma that perpetuates economic and social differences in our society. Again, 4,000 years ago, it made a lot of sense. And in some cases, it made a lot of sense until much more recently as well. You don't think that 4,000 years ago, people could live peacefully? Uh, There's plenty of examples of countries that didn't have to resort to violence to structure their civilization. I think it depended on what resources they had what vulnerabilities they had. And a lot of people probably did live an uneventful life without much war, you know, conflict, changing regimes. But in some cases, strategically placed areas, I could see that conflict was a necessary evil. Yeah. The people who lived those peaceful lives focusing on what matters were the people that didn't have to worry about monarchs and monarchs' egos and the need to expand based on their royal or heaven-sent decrees. But beyond that, one justification that I think is faulty is this might makes right. If you have the military prowess, you get to own a country. The other way that people gained rule is once their fathers took over a country, then they were just born into it. I think that this idea of power coming from bloodline is just as problematic as right coming from might. Are you saying that just because they're relatives, they are somehow unqualified for the position? What about the lottery of birth where you happen to be born to a king rather than being born to a peasant automatically qualifies you to be capable of running a country? Well, I think there's more at play than just a baby happened and suddenly it's going to become a monarch. When dynasties are looking at doing what's best for their countries and their people, What they typically do is take the children born into those families and put them through a lot of education and training to make them into capable leaders. They really do care about what's best for their countries, and they take steps to make sure that the next generation will do as good a job as they're hoping they do as well. They need to show themselves, they need to step into their power, and they need to grow themselves into something new. And in those cases, that's the monarchy. Okay, but there's only so much that you can do through education. In the incredibly pertinent example of Ares Targaryen, known as the Mad King, the same, we could be nice and call them shortcomings that he had 
reared their head again later on when his lineage took power. The same blood flows in their veins, the same weaknesses. Which brings us back to the idea of might making right and incapable leaders being conquered by others who are more capable and better for the people. Okay, but who can conquer who else does not equate to better for the people. Uh, And oftentimes it's the opposite. People who learn that in order to take and maintain control through force, then use those same tactics on people who question them in any way, shape, or form, even if those questionings are legitimate. In some cases, the monarchy does not reflect the will of the people, but I think there are going to be a lot more cases where they do, even if they took that throne by force. All right. I think if you were to add up the number of monarchs who are good for the people and the number of monarchs who are good for themselves, definitely the numbers fall on my side. But I have another question. If you're defending two types of justification, one, you're defending the justification of force gives you legitimacy to the throne. And two, you defend the justification that a bloodline can give you legitimacy in the throne. What happens when a child of a king is then conquered by someone else and the throne shifts to that new person? In that case, who had the legitimacy, the bloodline or the force? Well, the bloodline did up until the point that they proved they could be beaten. So ultimately, I would say force probably wins over bloodline. But if the bloodline is strong enough and the training was adequate enough, then they should have no problems retaining their throne. Mm. What if the people, which is my contention that we should overthrow the monarchy, what if the people are the ones that rise up and take out the leadership? Because the thing is, free folk don't follow names or little cloth animals sewn on a tunic. They won't dance for coins. They don't care how you style yourself or what that chain of office means or who your grandsire was. They follow strength. They follow the man. What are you even talking about? (laughs) Okay, I thought it would be fun if we were to take quotes from various rulers in movies and TV and intersperse them throughout the episode and see how many of them our listeners could catch. Well, we're giving a a good number of puzzles and challenges out to our listeners today. (laughs) One more thing that they can let us know at the end of the episode alongside of my victory is maybe how many quotes and who the quotes were by. And what if we gave the person that was able to identify the most of them a reward? Like what kind of reward? I'm not sure. What do you think would be a fitting reward for such a champion? What if we had a listener pick what one of our topics would be for an upcoming episode? That seems fair. All right. So if you identify the most quotes and who said them throughout the episode, send us in an episode suggestion and we will record that just for you. Make it a good one. (laughs) Yeah, please don't, please don't hold us to something crazy. All right. So I think it's pretty clear that we've already established that these rulers did not have the right to become rulers. According to you, I think that it's pretty (laughs) clear that they did. Let's move to the next thing. Were the people better off for having a monarchy? You seem to have suggested this a bit already. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's plenty of evidence that shows that having a stable monarch means that these countries, these territories were less frequently invaded, that these countries were able to build alliances that gave them favorable trade relations, and they could potentially spread their empire into new areas. Um, But ultimately, they were a force of stability. They would not condone a course of action that would lead them to war unnecessarily. That all assumes that you get one that doesn't suck. 
Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? I'm not familiar. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the logic there is, is a little bit in conflict with itself, where you're saying on one hand, it's going to create stability in these people's lives. But on the other hand, the monarchs are going to have the capacity to spread their empires, which you're basically saying invade other people. So even if a particular monarch is good for their people, it's certainly bad for the number of people that are conquered in order to fulfill their lust for more land and more power. I think you're thinking about that entirely the wrong way. A lot of the times that we've seen conquering happen, they brought people things like trade, more resources, and religion that they ultimately were appreciative of and welcomed. Yeah, they brought them religion and they brought them blankets. And how did that work out for people who were given these gifts? Well, we saved their souls, didn't we? (laughs) All right. That's really where you're going to stake your claim here. (laughs) And on the idea of religion, besides the just obvious argument that if you didn't share the religion of the conquering king, oftentimes you were converted by force. And for people who really believe that their God is the God and didn't want to be converted, their other option was usually just death. But beyond that, it also brings up the concept of the divine right of kings where kings try to sell this story that their power, and this is in contrast to what you were saying earlier, their power, rather than just being through human force or ability on this physical plane, was actually granted to them by God. This concept just prevents them from being accountable to anything. So they take something by force, and then they hold on to it with magic. You're oversimplifying it. They take this power very seriously when they're talking about the the responsibility that was granted to them by divine power to the people that they're ruling over. You're painting this very much as an adversarial relationship between the monarchs and the people that they govern. But most monarchs, most of the time, prioritize the safety and well-being of the people that they ruled. Their royal subjects are highly important to them. Mostly, they were fighting against other monarchs and other people while prioritizing their own citizens. I don't buy the idea that these monarchs are out there looking out for their citizens. I think it's the old adage, most people work just hard enough not to get fired, and most places pay them just enough that they won't quit. It's that concept taken to ancient times where most monarchs will do just enough that the people don't revolt against them. (laughs) And most people will comply just enough that they're not slaughtered by their king. And I don't think that that's a sustainable or fair or legitimate or desirable state of affairs in any way. I think that's exactly how society organizes itself, whether or not it's a monarchy. I think we can say that our democratically elected leaders are pretty much doing the bare minimum right now, right? But they're held accountable because then they can be removed from office, which is a hugely important difference. The king can be removed through a revolt, which you've mentioned twice now. And that's my point. If you're going to use the revolt as your your solution, then I win this debate. If the monarchy is bad, but I'm going to prove it, and I've been proving it, that monarchies are good. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't buy that argument. I think if we were to add up all of the leaders throughout history and the ones that were good for the people and the ones that were bad for the people, I just think that that balance falls really strongly on my side. And I think for a major reason here is the monarchs who had the most control 
were oftentimes the ones that were the most violent, that would sail around the world, taking over new kingdoms and pillaging people that they did not consider their own subjects. So even if they're protecting a minority of people that they would consider their own, the rest of the world is suffering. And that that happens the larger these empires grow, the worse the influence is going to be. Well, it sounds like you've been watching a lot of Vikings, but I don't think you've been watching very closely. Sure, they took their boats and they went to new lands and they ransacked them in some cases, but they also did build alliances and trade partnerships. So there was a variety of different ways that they exercised their power and influence, and it wasn't all violent. I don't think you really want to mess with my knowledge base on this. I watch a lot of the history, biographies, and obituaries channel. I even have the max subscription to it. So I've seen plenty of shows on this topic. History, biographies, no bitch. Are you talking about HBO? Yes. Oh, we, we, need, <laughs> we need to have a conversation if you think that that's what that channel is. They cover all sorts of monarchies in, in great historical detail. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. If you're so upset with how monarchies have done things historically, and you can't see that there has been plenty of benefit for people who lived in monarchies, what are some alternatives to that type of government, especially when we're looking at no other real leaders coming out that had any qualifications? All right, that's a fair question. I I do think there's legitimate alternatives. I think that it would be preferable for people to live in an anarcho-syndicalist commune where they take turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week, but all decisions of that officer have to be ratified at special bi-weekly meetings by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs or a two-thirds majority in the case of more major concerns. You really like red tape. (laughs) Okay, there might be a little bit of bureaucracy that exists, but I think that there's equally positive examples of democracies, even in the ancient times, which you don't seem to think exists, in contrast to the monarchies that plagued the world at the time. And and the obvious example here, I think, would be Greece, where they had a democratic system. They were ruled by kings, but those kings were held accountable. They were elected rather than just murdering their rivals or happening to be born to the right person. And that made them more representative. And it made them really hold their people's best interests in mind versus your assertion that a king, we just sort of hope that they kept their best interests of the people in mind. Ancient Greece. Who was voting for them in ancient Greece? The people. Which people? Some, some, some of the people. Okay, more people. Even I get your point. It was it was the elite, but more people had input into this particular system than a system where Khal Drogo runs around cutting off his rivals' heads. I think it can be argued that a non-representative democracy is just as I guess, bad as you're framing monarchy to be. If it's not representative of all people, then it's not legitimate. I I don't see how you can make that argument, though, because if you do value representation, then any move that I make on my side and my alternatives towards representation wins me the debate over your side that has zero representation whatsoever. But you're representing the people who least need to be represented. And who are you representing? The nobody. God. (laughs) and he needs a ton of representation to uh to to live healthy huh clearly look at how many preachers there are but let's look (laughs) back to your example of greece okay it was an empire that functioned with some version of a democracy one that i think was insufficient but it was defeated by the roman empire it wasn't sustainable in case you're forgetting the roman empire was run by an emperor 
aka somebody who is not democratically elected to lead its people. All right. Roman Empire is a reasonable example for your side. Definitely lasted a long time. But I think it's important to note if you're going to point to the fall of Greece, the fall of the Roman Empire happened as the world developed, became more civilized and more populated. And the idea of having an empire that spans half of a continent became unsustainable. The whole idea of a system based on the power of one person is nonsensical. The masses realize they can overthrow at any time. Free men can stand against a tyrant, and even a god king can bleed. I don't think we're ever going to agree on what system of government was best in ancient times. I'm obviously correct, but I don't think you're going to agree. Maybe we should look outside of the Dark Ages a bit and bring this discussion into the modern times. Our beloved Queen Elizabeth. Exactly. I think that what we need to look at primarily is how there has been a mix of government that incorporates some of the principles that you think are so important, such as representative democracy, but maintaining this important institution that is a monarchy in many countries that have a constitutional monarchy. There's over two dozen of them, and they're very successful, highly functional countries in the majority of cases. All right, fine. Let's start. Let's look at some of these constitutional monarchies. I think they're problematic. And then let's also look at some of the absolute monarchies that still exist in the world today, which I think is, to coin a Kelly phrase, wild. I do say that a lot, don't I? I'm stealing your material to use against you. Okay. I think we'll couch a lot of this discussion on constitutional monarchies in the British Empire, since it has such a prevalent presence in the world and has a notable monarch in that the queen has just celebrated 70 years on the throne. And you have just baked her a pudding. I've steamed or boiled a pudding. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> it's very stodgy and made with suet, which is animal fat. It's disgusting. My claim to culinary skills consists primarily of putting the right amount of milk into a bowl with the right amount of cereal. That, that is an art as well. <laughs> Do you think there's going to be a, a cereal competition for the Queen's 80th if she makes it that far? It's possible. <laughs> a a Weedabix competition. One area of a monarchy's purpose that is incredibly important to a lot of the countries which still have them is the idea of tradition and the stability that comes with that. I know everyone's going to say an appeal to tradition is weak argumentation, but when we're actually looking at the effects that monarchies have had in these countries, the tradition has brought a lot of stability and favorable opinions from the people themselves. There is a certain amount of continuity that you get from a constitutional monarch being there year over year, looking at different political changes that have happened during their reign, that type of stability doesn't happen in countries where there's a full change of the head of state and change of government on a regular basis. So even though, like say the United Kingdom has had multiple different prime ministers since the queen was coronated, differences in their regimes as political leaders has been kind of minor because they still have this monarchy to uphold. So they haven't had a full sale change of the entire societal structure in a way that a lot of other countries have had. You're couching stability as a positive thing, but I actually think stability can be a negative thing. Again, a lot of your arguments assume the existence of a quality monarch. And to be fair, Queen Elizabeth has been decent. But imagine if you have a monarch who is not good for the people, and then you have to deal with them for 70 years. What you're calling stability could easily be reframed as just stagnation. 
So having somebody in power for that long, I don't think is a positive thing. There's a few things at play about having one monarch in power that long. That means the quality of the person themselves is just one aspect of that, but there's more to it. First, the queen in this case, or any British monarch, is a representative of the crown. So they are an entity that serves for that. It's kind of like the elected office, if we're looking at the president of head of state. The crown is the institution. The crown is the idea that surrounds the monarchy. But in addition to that, monarchs have people around them that help steer their decision-making in the interests of their people. They have counselors, they have aides, they have well-educated people who understand so much that is happening in that country that the likelihood that one specific person can really be that bad for a country is actually pretty minimal in a monarchy. Okay, so I have two responses to that. First of all, if you're going to look to the benefits of advisors, then obviously presidents and prime ministers also have advisors. So that's non-unique to monarchs. So I think you can get the benefits of that without the problem of having the same person for 70 years. So if you're going to point to the crown and the concept of the role in society as where you derive the benefit from, again, I think that the same benefit can be had for a prime minister or a president. The office existing for the duration of a country provides the stability that you look for, but with the person in that office changing more frequently through systems of accountability in democratic countries, I think that you get the benefit of both consistency and accountability as they're being counseled by their advisors So all of the goods that you're pointing to happen in a democratic system without the bads that I'm bringing up. You're asserting that many people probably would prefer a system where they had that change regime over regime, year over year, government over government. But if that was the case, then it wouldn't make sense that over 75% of the British population is in favor of keeping the monarchy. I think that's really important as a component of the constitutional monarchy is that the Monarch is working in conjunction with the government as well, not against the government. They are fulfilling ceremonial needs as the head of state, and the government functions collaboratively with the monarch. If she's not a king, where's her power? Can she form a government? Can she levy a tax, declare a war? No. And yet she is the seat of all authority. Why? Because the nation believes that when she speaks, she speaks for them. Mm, okay, so if if your argument here is that the monarchy, in this case, Queen Elizabeth, is symbolic, then don't you think that serving as a lasting representation of elitist ideologies and systems, oftentimes imperialist systems, is a pretty shitty symbol to be? So in the case of Queen Elizabeth, for example, she's still the monarch of Northern Ireland, a region where a huge percentage of the population wants independence. And having to look and see, quote, their queen for 70 years just reinforces the idea that they are subjugated to an empire that they don't want to be part of. This is the equivalent of building statues for Southern Civil War heroes in the US, just holding on to ideologies that have long since outlived their purpose or their legitimacy is is a bad idea. I think just like we are starting to tear down statues of Civil War heroes, we should tear down the queen. Well, she's like a really old lady. So I um, I think that's like pretty mean of you. 
<laughs> All I'm hearing is that she'd be easier to take down than a 500 pound statue. But she's not a statue. And I think that's a key difference here is that she has been changing and evolving and the monarchy has been changing and evolving to meet social norms. Obviously, they maintain an uphold tradition, but they're also responsive to what people want. And unlike a statue, that means that, yeah, sometimes they're problematic, but they can also atone for it. And they also do a lot of public good that a statue doesn't do. The queen, for example, wore masks when she would go out in public when COVID was a really big concern and the royal family would get vaccinated. During World War II, before her coronation, she was a mechanic on military vehicles. And when she was married, the fabric that was used to make her wedding dress was paid for with ration booklets. There was a very strong tie to the idea that she was of the people, even as she was the the heir apparent in the royal family. I think that she is more of the people than a statue ever could be and more of the people than your claiming monarchs are. Okay. But again, going back to my argument in the ancient times part of the episode, that's all well and good if you are in the demographic of people that are considered her own. So for every person that looks up to her and sees that she uses a ration booklet to make her wedding dress out of, there's someone else living in India, for example, check this out in our stolen artifacts episode who sees her adorning herself with jewels from their country that is a constant reminder of the subjugation of their people by this empire and something that a civilized world should move on from, not hold on to through, you already said it, an appeal to tradition. Obviously, she's not perfect. Obviously, monarchies aren't perfect. But we can balance out the negative aspects of the monarchy with all the positive things that they bring to their people and many people of the world. The Queen of England is the queen of not just England, but also of the United Kingdom and many Commonwealth countries, and has provided a lot of stability and morale boosting during times of great strife around the world. The Second World War, the monarchy was incredibly important. She wasn't quite a ruler yet, but other global crises as well. Now, more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. Okay, that's that's all well and good. But at the same time that the queen, for example, in World War II, was a figurehead to the masses, You also have elected leaders like Winston Churchill or Margaret Thatcher during other times of conflict that provided a similar benefit with an increased level of legitimacy because of the way that they came to power, not through violence or lineage, but representative democratic procedures. In collaboration with the monarchy. You don't think that the elected leadership of countries would be able to do their job without some lady walking around in cosplay, wearing her robes and jewels? I don't think you know what the queen looks like, for starters. But I don't think any country gets by without having a head of state. And in this case, the type of service that the queen provides as the head of state means that she takes on all of the ceremonial work that otherwise, say the president of the United States does the head of state and the head of government actions. So they have to go do all the like tree planting bullshit in addition to signing laws. The queen takes care of all the things like smashing champagne bottles on boats and speaking at hospices and shaking hands of little kids and things like that. And then the prime minister and the rest of the government can go do their real job. And it's a great balance. It's more efficient form of government that way. 
Okay, first of all, I know exactly what the queen looks like. She looks like Betty White if Betty White were cosplaying Game of Thrones. And second of all, if your big benefit for having a monarchy is that they can smash champagne bottles and kiss babies on cheeks, uh, I don't think that balances out with the harmful impacts that they have, both in appealing to elitist and imperialist traditions and just a continuation of rule at the expense of the people, like literal monetary expense of the people. So in order to have somebody plant trees, according to you, (laughs) the queen, whose net worth is over 350 million British pounds, the state is having to pay every year 40 million pounds for her services, which in the last couple of years has increased to 67 million pounds. This is for things like housing, security, weddings, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so the British family does cost some money to the government in the United Kingdom, but let's look at the contributions they get in return for that. They contribute 1.155 billion British pounds. I cannot convert that into dollars because I'm not a robot. Maybe artificial intelligence could help us with that one. But it's specifically contributing over 530 million pounds to tourism in 2015. Additionally, the way that they dress themselves, the products that they use, there are certain economic effects of endorsing brands. Kate Middleton specifically has a very strong sartorial influence. And every time she wears a specific designer or carries a specific handbag or clutch, a clutch is a kind of handbag. It's just smaller. I don't know what you know about fashion. I know what a clutch is, but I don't know what sartorial means. (laughs) But the fact that she is wearing these specific designers is also helping boost this industry over 150 million pounds a year. There's obviously... Uh, an effect on how money circulates in their economy as a result of what the British family offers. Well, first of all, if your argument here is they help luxury brands make money, not sure how that's a justification for their existence. And second of all, we have people like that too in the United States. It's called Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. They also make millions of dollars for these fashion brands and bring millions of dollars into the economy. But we don't have to subsidize them like you subsidize the royal family. So you have a system where the average taxpaying family who is not making enough every year to be wanting to just give it away so that the queen can wear Prada or whatever she wears, they're funding a system that where the money is funneled into corporations that don't need that kind of support. I think there's something unique about the monarchy. It makes sense that this is how the government spends its money on a royal family. First of all, the queen doesn't collect a salary. The money that is spent on her is primarily for housing and security and things like that. The entire British family is also serving as these ceremonial tree planters or what have you. And they, as a whole, took less in taxpayer money in 2015, 2016 than it cost us as American taxpayers for the trips that Trump took to Mar-a-Lago, just his trips to go golfing in Florida between 2017 and 2019. And I think there's a lot of criticism about how the royal family as a whole is being supported by the British people, but they're, as I said, providing a service. And we do the same thing for the president's children and spouses as well in the United States, and they aren't doing really anything for us. 
Melania did a lot for online bullying because of the Trump family. There is no online bullying anywhere anymore. But <laughs> I think that the problem with Trump is that he thought a king can do whatever he wants. But there's more to being king than getting your way all the time, at least theoretically. In some countries, it does seem like that's all there is to being king. You, we've talked predominantly about the British monarchy up until now, but there's several other places around the world that have pretty well-established monarchies in addition to just the United Kingdom. In Thai society, for example, the king is a figure of inestimable importance, a Hindu-Buddhist paragon of presumed dignity, virtue, and morality, at least theoretically. Their previous king was widely beloved by the people, but their current king, Rama X, whose real name is Wajira Lankan, which means, fun fact, adorned with jewels or thunderbolts. Not sure how they decided to put those two things together, but apparently jewels and thunderbolts is what this dude is uh, adorned with. And there's videos of him at 64 years old, roaming around a shopping mall in Munich, Germany, not Thailand, where he lives most of the time, accompanied not by his wife, but his mistress. Uh, he was eating ice cream while wearing a very unmonarchical jeans and crop top outfit with his bare midriff displaying what seemed to be elaborate temporary tattoos. This is your Hindu Buddhist paragon of presumed dignity, virtue, and morality. Okay. Hindu Buddhist paragons of presumed dignity, virtue, and morality deserve to have hot girl summer too. And it sounds like you're slut shaming a king. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. To be fair, if I was able to just like walk around shirtless uh, eating ice cream, I would do it also, but I would uh, hopefully not be doing it with a mistress when I'm supposed to be the king of a country and setting an example and appealing to tradition, as you point out, one of your defenses for them. The one thing I will give this guy is he did throw a four-day funeral for his pet poodle when it passed away. That, that's an argument in his favor. See, he's a softie. <laughs> but my, my point is, even when you have a monarch that you can point to that's a good example, there's going to be at least as many monarchs that you can point to that are hugely problematic. Even in the United Kingdom, where I'll give you the queen has by and large been a positive influence in Britain. I still don't think so outside of the borders, but there's huge amounts of discontent over the idea of Prince Charles taking over the crown, starting with his rocky marriage to Britain's fairy tale Princess Diana that was riddled with extramarital affairs, and more recently, several scandals relating to his charity work. Most people would prefer to avoid his ascendance in favor of his son, Prince William. I mean, I think the best choice is none of them. But the point is, you can't just pick and choose who's going to become the monarch. When you have a system like this, you are stuck with whatever you get. And more often than not, what you get is not a positive influence. Again, you're not just getting the one person. You're getting all of their advisors, all of their counselors, and a whole system of government that really has the majority of the control in the actual day-to-day -day lives of the people in these constitutional monarchies. Mm. Even if that's the case, we're talking about constitutional monarchies, but if you support the idea of monarchies in general, there are also countries around the world right now that have absolute monarchies. So for example, in Saudi Arabia, there's the House of Saud and other Middle Eastern nations have similar systems. And these are almost defined by 
the human rights violations that occur under regimes like this, laws against sedition, limiting free speech, assassinations, political jailings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And (laughs) these are all the things that you have to deal with, repercussions for your desire for some sense of stability in a system. They are very stable countries and pretty wealthy ones too. That's nice. All right. If that's where you're going to, you know, if you're going to put your eggs in that basket, I suppose. Furthermore, if we're talking about Saudi Arabia and the region in which Saudi Arabia exists, a lot of the attempts at different types of government haven't fared too well. A lot of the same issues of centralized power and the quashing of dissidents and things like that are issues even when they have quote unquote democracies. And there's a lot of strife in a lot of the countries that are trying regime change. I'd say that maybe a monarchy is the best, an absolute monarchy even might be the best for some of the people in some of these circumstances. We can point to specific examples of countries in the Middle East that have had regime change and are supposedly better forms of government now because they're democracies, such as Iraq. And I don't think that we're going to argue that Iraq is a more stable country than Saudi Arabia considering the presence of, I don't know, ISIS. What's the defense of of the priority of a democratic government when the democratic government is obviously a less stable one for this specific instance? Right. But I I would argue that the problems with Iraq don't stem from a democratic system, but they they stem from the issues that come with Premier Bush, who was uh, thought of himself as a monarch, I would argue, and Saddam Hussein, who most certainly saw himself in a royalty-esque position. So I would argue that Iraq's issues do stem to this attitude that surrounds monarchy rather than the democratic system that they're attempting to implement currently. But I also have, I'm going to help you out here. We've covered monarchies in ancient times, how they got their power, which I think I've won. Hmm. Totally, totally illegitimate methods and justifications. Mm-hmm. We've got (laughs) whether or not they were good for the people in ancient times. I think the kind of war and subjugation that the average person had to deal with, definitely an argument against monarchies. We've moved to modern times. Which I obviously come out as the victor when we're looking at modern democracies versus modern monarchies. I think it's pretty clear that the United Kingdom is a really great country. Mm, or okay. four countries. <laughs> you're, uh, and, and then alongside your one example of the United Kingdom, we have Thailand, we have Saudi Arabia, which are, are certainly problematic currently. But all of that leads us to, I actually have an argument for your side of the debate. I ha- I'm going to help you out a little bit because I think at this point you need it. Oh, this will be interesting. So my argument for why we should have monarchies is because if we have monarchies, then we can overthrow them. Having a monarchy around gives us the opportunity to overthrow them in glorious fashion, reasserting the dominance of the proletariat masses over our elitist overlords. The only thing the French have ever done right, besides the baguette, was the revolution. So if your argument is that you want the population to have a distraction, to feel good about themselves, then this is the way. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And I think it's time that monarchs around the world experience the latter. I legitimately don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Victory, I've, I've won this debate. I didn't say that. <laughs> 
I guess, thank you, Josh, for that argument for my side, however wild it was. I think at this point, we need to leave the decision to our listeners as to who actually won this thing. Mm, that's right. I need to earn my bag OT. I'm going to get a, a nice British breakfast blend just in honor of your Queen Elizabeth to celebrate my victory. Hmm, interesting. I look forward to drinking Costco coffee. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. I, I haven't seen it, but a bag of Costco coffee probably lasts you a long time. <laughs> we'll see. Well, if you actually want to weigh in on who won, we'll have those polls up on Twitter and Facebook at Indubitably Pod. And also our competition for who can identify the most quotes that we have interspersed throughout the episode. You can also leave us a comment there and we'll be deciding the winner of that in the next week. Sure. I look forward to sipping my Costco coffee in June when we officially celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And we will see everybody next time. Thanks for listening and take care.